When I started my career, I just took my younger self into the workplace. It's getting along. It's keeping a consensus. It's, it's taking care of people. I think that that's evolved more into the idea about collaboration and bringing people along, having people have skin in the game so they will go along with you and understanding that you can't please everyone. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Naracha Tejik Manavud. Naracha is the Executive Vice President of Global Success and Strategy at Salesforce, focused on creating sustainable customer success. Naracha also serves as the Executive Advisor for Salesforce Women's Network and is the Executive Sponsor for Asia Pact Force, an employee group for members of the Asia Pacific region and their allies. Before joining Salesforce in 2009, Naracha held various leadership roles at Oracle. She currently also serves as a board member for both the Girl Scouts of Northern California and for Safe and Sound, a San Francisco nonprofit focused on the eradication of child abuse. In this episode, we spoke with Naracha about how growing up as the oldest daughter of Thai immigrants impacted how she showed up in the workplace early in her career, why one of the best pieces of advice she received was to state her own needs and ask for what she wants, and how she code switches when she's doing business in the US versus in Asia. Naraja, thank you so much for coming on to Cross the Lines today. We are incredibly excited to have you on the show. And hat tip to our previous guest, Dave Wu, for making the generous introduction and putting us in touch. So Naraja, how we like to start off our podcast is by asking our guests what their favorite food was growing up, since food is such a powerful vehicle and conduit. Uh, what was that for you? What was your favorite food growing up? Thank you for having me. And thank you for the awesome tee up question. I am Thai Chinese. So I grew up in Asia and I loved two very down home dishes that are Thai. One is beef balls in noodle soup. That's luk tin in Thai. To be precise. And then the other, that's kind of hard to find in the U.S. The other thing is chicken rice, which actually is remarkably popular here now. In Thai, it's called kawan gai. And chicken rice has many different versions. There is, you know, it's called loosely Hainanese chicken rice, but the sauce served in Thailand versus the sauce served in Singapore is very different. And I presume whatever you get in Hainan is probably different too. So I am a chicken rice connoisseur. I love that. I'm, I'm totally butchering the chicken and rice connoisseur-ness, um, but in San Francisco, there's this place called Chicken and Rice, and it's literally the opposite of probably <laughs> what you're articulating. Just super bland chicken and rice. We need more We need more cuisine. We need more spice. We need more taste in that restaurant. I don't know if you've heard of that place before and need some of your support. <laughs> there's like a few places in San Francisco that serve chicken rice, actually. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, so the one I go to, which is on the Haight near Golden Gate Park, is is called What the Cluck. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and it's actually <laughs> funny. They are, it's, it's a Thai family who runs it. It's very much authentic if you use all the sauces. 
I but they it. have a San Francisco version on salad, which is, you know, on salad. Totally, oh no. Totally not. <laughs> not what you're looking totally for. not. Definitely not. Manarat, <laughs> <laughs> just speaking about some of your favorite dishes growing up and and just like Thai culture generally. You you had traveled to Thailand recently. I'm I'm curious how that experience was for you and any impactful moments that you wanted to highlight. Yeah, so my mother lives in Bangkok and I regularly visit her. And so this had been a really long time. So when things were opening up in the spring after we got vaccine, my sister and I said, we're going to go see her. So we, we started planning this in April. Uh, unfortunately, between April and July, when we went, there were new developments in the, uh, in the COVID vaccine world, specifically the Delta variant. And so we kept the trip on, but we were in quarantine for two weeks. We did quarantine in Phuket, which gave us a little bit more room than in a hotel room in Bangkok. And then we flew into Bangkok. And unfortunately, the week before, Bangkok had gone into full lockdown. So I think the, the purpose of the trip was to spend time with our mother, and that was successful. But other than that, we didn't really do very much because the country was in lockdown. I think the interesting things for me on the trip, one was the mask culture in Asia. Everyone wears a mask. It's, it's just kind of de facto. You put your mask on. People keep the masks on. They don't pull them down over their noses. You know, the mask culture is strong, obviously, from various mini disease pandemics over the years. And then the other thing that was amazing to me is the vaccine supply in Thailand, specifically in many other countries in Asia, is um, pretty limited. And so people are desperate for the vaccine. They're lining up overnight when there's a rumor that you know a specific location is going to be giving vaccine shots in the morning. Whenever they turn on a, a method of getting vaccine appointments, either in a private hospital or a public hospital, the servers are inundated and people so, so, so want those shots, uh, which is a little bit of a contrast with what we see right now in the US where we've been very, very lucky. Um, so those are probably the two impactful things besides seeing my family and eating all my favorite foods, but only in takeout. Yeah, it's just such a different way of operating than the U.S., right? Where you see almost the complete opposite of radical individualism and vaccines being available, but not being accepted. I think it, it really puts things in perspective, just seeing how the circumstances are in other countries and the, the cultural dimensions that drive those behaviors. You know, Naraja, on the topic of family and your Thai background, you've mentioned before that you were the oldest daughter in a traditional Thai household. We're really curious what this entails, what kind of values you were brought up with, given this background. And moreover, how have these values perhaps accelerated your personal and professional journey? And in what ways have you had to unlearn some of these values, especially as you transition to living in the United States? Well, my father was an expat, so we moved all over in Asia. So I didn't come to the U.S. until I was 18. And he was an expat, which meant that my mother was a homemaker. So she gave up her career. She was a full-time um, mother to, to myself and my sister. And she was pretty much a full tiger mom. So whatever she wanted to accomplish in her life that may, was maybe thwarted because Back then, as a wife of an expat, it was, you know, you couldn't really work. So it was charity work. It was, you know, that kind of thing. So she focused very much on her daughters and I was her oldest daughter. So I was raised to be a good girl. Like I pretty much, 
I never talked back. I did what I was told. I colored well within the lines. I made my box as pretty as possible. And I, I was taught to, you know, work really hard and make your family proud. Oh, and make, make, make money too. You know, that's kind of part of the equation. You know, I was raised to take care of everyone. I, I was the oldest daughter. Keep the peace, take care of everyone. Raised just to be, just to be very nice. And I would say the very first time I actually didn't do something that my parents wanted me to was when I told them I didn't want to be a doctor. And I was very, very firm that I didn't want to be a doctor. And that was probably the first time that I ever didn't do something that they wanted. So that was, that was my upbringing. <laughs> and what was their reaction to that? How did you navigate that conversation? Yeah, you know, I, I had reasons. I just, it just never appealed to me, you know, so after I told my mother, I didn't want to be a doctor because every good Asian household, you have a child and they're like, oh, you should be a doctor. That's just the, that's just the way it goes. And I said, I didn't really want to do that. And my mother said, well, what about a dentist? And I said, no, I don't want to do that either. I, you know, I hate my dentist as a child, so I don't want to be hated. And it was this long conversation where finally they just kind of gave up on me. Because I was just very firm. I was like, I don't want to do that. And it was interesting that I actually, I don't know, stood up to them on that. Because most of the time, you want me to play piano? However many years, I did it, right? I didn't particularly love it, but I did it. But that was in my teenage years. That's my one moment of rebellion, I think. I'm curious, Nacha, how has that impacted your own parenting style? Because now you have, you mentioned you have children in, in the Bay Area and, and, you're, and you're raising them with like different values that you want to assumingly part, like portray um, in terms of your own Thai background, but then there's also a lot of influences that come um, from the Western influence. And so how, how have you kind of thought about like raising your own children with reference to how you were raised in, in, the, in the world that your kids are living in now? Yeah, I, I am not a tiger mom. And I think one of the things, and I've actually told my daughters this when they were younger, when they would complain if I missed back to school night or some some sort of school-based event and they would be like mommy I, I don't understand why you work you know so-and-so's mother doesn't work I, I got that quite a few times and I basically said look I if I didn't work I would be all in your business all the time like I'm not like super detail oriented with my kids I was like do these things at a loose outline you want to play volleyball great you don't want to play soccer great I never focused so much on what I wanted for them. Uh, they actually got to make a lot of choices. And so for me, I don't want to say that I'm the anti-Tiger mom, but I was definitely, there is an expectation on academics. I can't get rid of that. You know, that's just ingrained in my DNA. But in terms of like, so was, my mother said to me, my, my younger daughter's in college and my mother said to me, what are her grades? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure they were okay, but I haven't asked her. And that my mother was horrified. My mother was horrified that this was an answer that her daughter gave about her granddaughter. There you go. That's great. That's great. Definitely a different paradigm of parenting than what, what you grew up with. I think there's a lot of interesting themes that you touched on in um, your last few points around generational differences, around being a woman in Asian culture and the intersection of a lot of those things. And I'm really curious, given this background, given your upbringing of, you know, watching your mom operate in a world and a circumstance that might not have been built for her professionally, 
And then for yourself entering the workforce, could you walk us through some of your thinking on, you know, how some of these various aspects of your upbringing and these values and this environment that you're brought up in had an impact on how you thought about the intersection of that with your career? Yeah, I thought a lot about this. I mean, when I started my career, I was very much, I just took my younger self into the workplace, right? It's it's about likability. It's getting along. It's keeping a consensus. It's it's taking care of people. It's being the one to volunteer to go, I don't know, go on the donut run, whatever it is, like this random task. I'd be like, well, I can do that, right? Because that's kind of what I learned. And I think that that's evolved more into the idea about collaboration and bringing people along, having people have skin in the game so they will go along with you in terms of kind of leadership in the professional sphere and understanding that you can't please everyone. This was a big, big realization for me. You can't please everyone and that's okay. So again, having this, the base of soft skills, I think is great for me, but understanding that you then could be regarded as not necessarily having an opinion, not assertive, and, and so kind of unlearning some of that. So instead of trying to please everyone, kind of pulling that back in a little bit. And that's really what I, I focus on in, in, in my personal journey of trying to uh, fit in in the West as well. And you also, you've also mentioned in the past that like one of the best pieces of advice was to state the needs, state your own needs and ask for what you're looking for. Where did that, where did that perspective come from? Did it come from this ability to kind of unlearn always wanting to be liked or like how, how did, how did that mentality be a part of you? Well, that, that actually came from, from a, uh, a class I actually took in business school. It's called Touchy Feely, where you learn about your impact on others and other people's perception of you in, in, in a very honest, kind of a brutally honest, but safe way with a very small cohort. And I got that feedback. I got the feedback where I, I did not speak up very much. And I got the feedback that someone said, well, we don't know what you're thinking. And, and I said, well, no, I, I, I agreed with the point. I was kind of nodding along, you know, and I, I didn't think that I had any, another angle to add to it. So I didn't say anything. And they said, well, we, it actually seemed like you were judging us, not saying anything. And it was so weird for me because of course the dissonance was really high because that's not what was in my head. And the feedback was, well, that's nice. But if you don't say what's in your head, no one knows. Right. If you don't say what you need, no one knows what you need. And nobody is going to spend time trying to read your mind versus everything that every individual is, is going through on their own. So so that was this, it was like a revelation. We had we had actually had a weekend retreat, and that was my revelation. I was just so amazed that that was the perception of me when I didn't think that that's what I was doing at all. And so having the ability to get that feedback in a safe way and have people be constructive. That was really where it started for me, like state your needs and ask for what you want. And, and of course, if you look at all the research, it is, it is pretty common that females especially are known to not ask what they, for what they want, not negotiate. And that's something that it takes some getting used to, but it, you know, practice, practice makes you a little bit better at asking for what you want. Yeah. And it's understandable too, why that might've been tough initially for you, since what you're describing there is almost diametrically opposed to the way that you're brought up. 
to keep the peace, to be the caretaker, to be the eldest daughter. So I think that's a, that's a really important revelation there or revel, not revelation, revelation there. Well, I think, I, I think Angie, what's super interesting is for me earlier in my career, I actually worked in Bangkok for like six months at a time at these kind of extended internships. And so one year, and this was years ago, I was staying in a service apartment in Bangkok and I go down to this little gym in the service apartment and the guy at the counter who, you know, checks you in, gives you a towel, et cetera. I, I had like nodded to him like once or twice before. So I'm going down to go for a workout. And, and he said, um, so you live in America? And, and I said, yes. And, and he said, yeah, I can tell. And I said, oh, you know, is my tie not, you know, he's like, no, it's not your tie. He's like, it's the way you talk. He said, you have a very hard jaw. This is translation from Thai, but I thought about the translation and it's like, you have a very hard jaw. So the way you talk is very hard or firm. And he said, you know, so that's very American. And, you know, it's, he basically said, it's really not that attractive in maybe slightly different words. And this was a long time ago, but my God, that again was like this big tipping point for me. I was like, wait, this guy in the gym who see me like three times has now assessed me around the hardness of my jaw and the way I talk. And, and, and so that was the sense to me that I don't really fit in in Thai culture where people have commented when they hear me speak in Thai or to a Thai customer, my tone softens. It's just this thing that happens and the intonation calms right down. It's just calmer and quieter and you don't wave your arms around. You don't get worked up, right? That's really not what you do. And then here in the U.S., I'm told, well, you don't talk enough. You don't speak up enough. So it's this weird contrast to me around cultures. And, and now that I've been privileged enough to work both here in the U.S. and I do a lot of business in Asia, I, I don't know how much of it's instinctive, how much of it's learned over the years. But I, I can tell that I'm a slightly different me when I'm with my Asian colleagues um, versus when I'm here in, in San Francisco. That's super interesting. I'll have to Google later what hard jaw translates into in Thai. <laughs> I'm just trying to like conceptualize because there, like, likewise, there's also words in Chinese that don't have a direct English translation. I think that's something that's so beautiful about how language is such like a powerful vehicle for culture. But I think the the interesting through line that I'm hearing from you, Naraja, is this idea that no matter where you go, you're going to be assessed based on how you act and within that cultural context. I'd love for you to talk about your career journey in the U.S. So you spent quite a few years at Oracle. You spent the past decade at Salesforce. So definitely a lot of years of experience in your belt, and you've seen and done a ton of things. I'd love to hear about this journey through the lens of your identity, you being a woman, you being an Asian American, and if there's any instances or stories that you could share of where assessment kind of came to the forefront of your interactions. Yeah, it's it's hard, right? I, I would say definitely having spent a decade at Salesforce, the assessment is tied into your results over the past years. So it, it's it's a little less hard than you're, you're coming into a whole new environment with a whole new set of people. So I do stay at companies a long time. And I do think part of it is not only that I um I enjoy colleagues, I enjoy getting to know people at a deep level, but I think part of it is also 
a little bit about the, the fear of being newly assessed all the time, right? It's, it's that there's a comfort level and a security at being at a place where you've performed and, and your, your internal brand is that you can do certain things. It's a super interesting point because I, I switched jobs in, in February and um, my new manager is someone actually I've known for a while, but it's the first time um, uh, working for him. And it's funny because we had this conversation about this new job and, you know, we were talking about the details and then I, I was kind of gearing up for the, the money question, right? I was like, well, you know, I'd like to ask about my compensation for this new job, right? Because, you know, that's, we're supposed, I was curious and that was supposed to ask. And then I, I put it out there and then, and I hate myself for it. I said a caveat. And the caveat is, well, you know, they say women never ask for what they want and they never bring up money. So I really think that I should do this. Now, did I really need to say that little bit at the end? No, not at all. Why am I justifying a question that is a normal question when you're taking on a new job? And so then, and again, we all obsess over things like, you know, I was like, why did I say that? Why did I say that? But it's made for a very good story because I've told other people this story. And I'm like, look at how long I've been working. Look at my relationship with my boss. And still, I was stressed out about the asking the question, so stressed out that I felt like I needed to temper it. And so, you know, we all work on different aspects, you know, of ourselves every day. And I don't think it ever ends. You're, you think you've conquered something and all of a sudden you're in a situation. You're like, oh, no, maybe I haven't quite conquered that thing, even though I think I have. So I, I think that, that, you know, you asked the original question, Angie, is about assessments. But I also think like as you get to know yourself, you know the key things you, you're trying to improve on. And then you realize that it's just a journey there. You know, I don't know that any of us are going to get to the destination. Oh, that's a that's a, a wonderful story, Niracha. Thank you for sharing that. Um, the fact that it just happened really recently, like these are these are things that yeah, like at some points you think that you've accomplished like certain skill set and you can check it off and you can move forward, and then you're like, wait a second, like I thought I already completed that. Like, why is it coming up again? One thing you mentioned right before the podcast was the 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 nuances between I guess the the overarching um, journey of your career, how the the corporate culture has impacted how you think about vulnerability generally, professionally, and personally. And maybe maybe like 10, 15 years ago, like you wouldn't have felt comfortable sharing what you just did to other colleagues to kind of coach them and educate them on something. Can you comment on how the corporate culture has changed in terms of vulnerability and openness and how that's impacted your own personal and professional life? Yeah, I think um, two dimensions to that for me. One is I think business culture has changed, right? It, new generations coming into the workplace have different expectations. They don't just you know, want to work 80 to 100 hours and make a bunch of money. There's a little bit more nuance to thinking about the whole package and then thinking about living a healthy life. So, so I do think the work culture has changed a little bit. Here in the US, I would say in many other countries around the world, that has always been the case. It's been like a holistic look. So I think that's one dimension. The other dimension for me is I've been lucky enough to be at Salesforce for over 10 years. And the Salesforce culture is very, you know, you could call it very touchy-feely, but it's very much focused on collaboration and connecting with others and authenticity. And so for me, the most recent phase of my personal journey has been at Salesforce. So I've always been encouraged to be vulnerable and, and to share a little bit more. And I think early on in my career, work was work and personal was personal. When I had kids, I, everyone knew I had kids, but I didn't talk about them a lot. And you know, if I had to get on an eight o'clock call and there was 
you know, a kid drop off at school, I would do it. And I tell my kids to be quiet. I never really wanted to disclose where I was and kind of where my head was and frantically trying to like get my morning organized. And now I think it's just more acceptable. And with the pandemic and everyone, a lot of people working remotely, where you're beaming in to people's bedrooms or offices or dining rooms or kitchens, and you're seeing their dogs, you know, run past and, and your ki their kids asking them for stuff. And so I think that getting to know a person, getting to know a teammate and getting to see their whole context and the things that make them who they are, I think it's been wonderful because you do, as you understand someone, you relate better, you have a deeper relationship and it, you can't separate your personal life from work. As a working mother, that was very, very clear to me that I was kind of a mess sometimes because of that, but I didn't feel that I should share that because I didn't want that perception. She's not really, her head's not really in the game, you know, she's like sending her kids instead of focusing on the call, like that kind of judgment, real or perceived, that's what I thought back then. And I don't think you have that same thing now. And that's been wonderful. I think that's a huge, huge leap forward in terms of general workplace culture. And then for me as a leader, sharing much more. And on that point, the, the past three or four months for our community especially have been somewhat of a crucible for this melding of personal and professional, where a lot of what has been affecting and damaging or, or painful for a community in the personal sphere has really transferred over to the professional sphere as well. And we really want to touch on this topic, Naraja, since you've been a very vocal advocate of anti-Asian hate and having these conversations around belonging diversity at Salesforce, which on one hand, there is a culture that is conducive to that. But on the other, I'd, I'd say there aren't many Asian American leaders or folks who also look like you in the rooms that you're in. So I'm curious how you also think about that balance between banging the table for what you believe in and having these important conversations. But on the other hand, kind of being one of the few folks in the room who are beating the drum. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a terrible year on that front. I remember when it kind of early on, when this, this Thai man actually in San Francisco was attacked and, and passed away and he had come from Thailand. He was helping look after his grandkids here in San Francisco. And that, it just brought back a lot about my dad who had recently passed away, although obviously not in similar circumstances, but it just reminded me, it was it really brought it home for me in terms of my family and how I could have envisioned that situation and how senseless it all was. And then in Salesforce, we have an equality group, an employee resource group called Asia Pack Force, and I am one of the exec sponsors. And we, we put together some sessions and we really had employees just sharing the things that happened to them, their experiences, how they were feeling. And it was incredibly emotional. Like people, people would share and they, and, and their experiences were all over the map and some so, so terrible. And I talked to so many younger colleagues who said, you know, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for showing us that if you see it, you can be it, right? And a lot of, just a lot of that conversation took place in this backdrop of anti-Asian hate. And that was, that was a real awakening for me. And it's, it's really hard to talk about 
at great length because it brings up so many emotions. You know, I'm female, obviously I'm Asian, obviously. So then you think back about things that have happened over your career and did they happen because you're Asian? Did they happen because you're female? That intersection, what is it? And, and ultimately it really doesn't matter. Like things, certain things happen. I think that having that conversation with colleagues, with Asians who, who may be feeling this way, but also with other colleagues in a way that you have to share so that people relate and then you build empathy together. A lot of it is, I like to say with my girls, it's not just one like 10 hour conversation. It's like 10,000 two minute conversations about difficult topics. You just have to be there and willing to have that conversation when the other person is re receptive. And I feel like I've had 10,000 conversations this year. And that if you'd said two years ago, oh, Raja, you'll be doing this. I'll be like, no, that's so not me. And here we are. The circumstances have changed. I think the pandemic has changed so much in the world. Um, I'm, I'm a more mature leader. And I think it's important to be very vulnerable and to share with others in case it will help them. I think if there is a silver lining in any of this, it would be that it's normalized the conversation around a lot of these topics in our community that was very hush us before or kind of like brush under the rug. It's really brought it to the forefront. A couple of things that I want to tap into based on what you just mentioned there, Naracha. One being people's responses to you throughout your career because you're Asian or because you're female. I think that really touches on this idea of intersectionality. And regardless of which part of their identity, your identity they're responding to, it's still responding to you as a person. I'm curious how you navigated your reactions and responses to those incidents in the past and knowing what you do now and being the leader you are now, how you'd respond to that. I think if I were to give advice to my younger self, my attitude when I was younger to a lot of things that happened to me was grin and bear it. It's, you know, you know, the nervous giggle was like this kind of stock response. And I think, and I do think that the younger generation come in the workplace today are very much more aware of their rights and their boundaries. And as a young working woman, I was not. And, and so that for me is something that I would say to my younger self, that if you think it's not okay in your head, it's not okay. You, you don't have to say, oh, I don't think it's okay in my head, but maybe in this scenario, it should be okay. And I should calm down you know, people coming up behind you and giving you a shoulder massage randomly, right? I cannot tell you how many times that has happened to me. And I, I don't think the intent is bad, but it's just not what I wanted. But was I ever able to say I, I didn't like that? No, not, not then. Um, and now it's not normal in the workplace to be able to do that. So that's a relief. And I would say that the conversation is you know, your point around intersectionality and how you relate to someone is there is always a point of commonality between two people. Sometimes you have to hunt for it a little bit. Sometimes it takes a little longer to get there, but there is always a point of commonality. And if you find that point of commonality, then it brings you to a better place of understanding, of empathy, and you can exist together or work together or collaborate. And I do, I do still believe that it, that's true. It's probably a weird thing to say, but you can find a common point with every single individual. And whether they're relating to you based upon what side of your personality is, is hard to say, but finding that piece of commonality, I think helps ground 
um, the interaction or the relationship in, in, in a much, much more sustaining way. And you can get to agreement or at least understanding. Raja, thank you so much for, for sharing that. As we wrap up here, one thing that we've been trying to include at the end of our podcast is asking our guests, what's one piece of contrarian advice that you would give? So what would that be for you? I would say I have always been a very, very big believer in long vacations. And I think that here in the US, you know, you take off for a week and everyone's like, oh, okay, you're going off for a week. You take off for two weeks. And people are like, whoa, you're going away for two weeks? Uh, it, it's just a mentality here. And I, I am a firm believer in the two-week vacation. If I were in Europe, I'd be taking the month vacation. But I, I think it's super important to, um, to go off and read, to, to go off and do nothing, to go off and do something but to, to leave work behind and, and for an extended amount of time. And long weekends, they, they just don't cut it. So that, that, is, uh, that is advice that I've actually followed pretty well. I love that, Niracha. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It was a pleasure getting to meet you and just having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.